You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Joe Gavallis here, uh, your host for the uh, Safe Senior Hour. Um, I hope everybody is uh, is doing well out there, and uh, and we're going to have an interesting show today. Uh, we're going to go to the first segment. We're going to just go over a few things that uh, update some some issues that apply to uh, uh, seniors dealing with um, abuse or financial exploitation. And today we have uh, back, and we can't uh, thank her enough, is Melanie McNeil, the uh, Georgia State Long-Term Care Ombudsman, if I said it right. And... Um, and uh, Melanie and I are going to have a conversation with uh, Mark Miller, who is the state long-term care ombudsman from the uh, District of Columbia, uh, to give us a little uh, different uh, view. Uh, he also was, I think, Melanie, what, New York? Yes, for both New York and, and Virginia. Virginia. So we'll have that. That will come on in our second segment uh, around 10:15. Again, I want to go over a few things today. Um, remember that... Um, Abuse doesn't report itself, so we need everybody to be diligent and and report any kind of suspicious abuse, whether, as again, we had uh, uh, define abuse uh, for our, our purposes as physical, financial, and institutional. Uh, and please tell your professionals, uh, call them, and, you know, if you're looking for help and it bothers you about the conditions, or you've seen things about some, some, uh, some of your loved ones, some, or you've heard about some situations. Please get some help. Call your local law enforcement, or in in most every state, I guess the Adult Protective Services. Um, financially, is we're going to talk about scams, as you know, every week. Scams. Seventy percent of abuse uh, of the elderly is financial. But unfortunately, there are two components of that. One is um, the vast majority is, or 40%, I think, is, uh, excuse me, 70% of, of all uh, financial fraud is done by someone who loved, who's been a loved one, a relative, or who you trust. Uh, the, other, the other percentage is done by professionals, and that's what we talk about. So you don't get, uh, get uh, conned by that. I was just... In a in a meeting, um, a small meeting in North Georgia, and sitting there talking about a situation, and a gentleman says, "You know, you're right on." It, there, his uh, uh, sister got caught in the grandparent scam. She's a grandparent. Got a call that her daughter gave up information. Everything we talk about, you shouldn't do. They did, and finally, she finally confided in her brother. Uh, this was after uh, about $42,000 was spent trying to get the, the, the daughter out of jail and back uh, back in this country. And, uh, you know, he, he just said, you know, they just, these people are professionals. And that's what we always say. If you don't know a phone number, don't answer it. Listen for the message and then call the, you determine the number if it's like your local sheriff's office, police office or federal agency call them and say I just got a call from somebody asking me to send money or to uh, help get somebody out of jail uh, check it out because it's ju- just a, a, a sad situation the um, 
And the last one, which we'll talk about today, is institutional abuse. And 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 I think we in the law enforcement community, as you know, I was 30 years working um, um, actually organized crime and labor racketeering, but uh, now coming out and dealing with with elder issues and uh, elder abuse, it is amazing to find out all the resources that are available that most people don't know. And, and I think, Melanie, your, your office is a good example. I, I know you try to get the message out, but it's a great it's it's a great resource. Thanks, Joe. Our ombudsman representatives are available to anyone who has a concern about someone who lives in a nursing home or a personal care home or a board and care home or assisted living community. We are independent of the facilities. We work for in most states we're either state employees as am I, I'm a state employee. Or in some instances, the state ombudsman program is through a nonprofit, but we are completely unrelated to the long-term care facilities. We have really sort of strict conflict of interest rules so that, so that you can be sure we are independent. As I said, we'll take the complaint from anyone who wants to complain. We are directed by the resident, so we have to talk to the resident first to see if what the allegation is has actually occurred so if the resident has been harmed by someone or has been taken advantage of by someone and then we're also directed by the resident whether we can take action or not one thing i do want to emphasize is everyone who works in a long-term care facility is a mandated reporter if they know about it they must report and particularly in nursing homes if an employee is aware and they don't report it, the employee can get in trouble for not reporting the the abuse that has taken place. It, it is, um, I know we had a discussion last time. Is is the number in whatever be your state and hopefully in in, in the other countries? Um, is there a number uh, like posted in each location? I know there are some a lot of government forms sometimes or government information. Right. So every long-term care facility should have a poster that mentions the long-term care ombudsman program, what we do, very briefly, and the phone number, the contact for the ombudsman representative. One other thing, federal law provides that ombudsmen have access to facilities no matter what, and residents should have access to the ombudsman program no matter what. So if we got a complaint that abuse has occurred on the third shift, so let's say 11 to 7, we can go in the facility at 11 o'clock or midnight or at whatever time. We do have authority to go in because our charge is to investigate complaints and try and verify them and take action to, to help the resident. Well, we, we're going to go in more detail uh, uh, about that when we get Mark on, on the line. I just wanted to go over a, f- a few um, uh, highlights of, of the fight against uh, elder abuse worldwide. Um, the um, I'm just looking here. That we have a a, uh, a Nigerian Mexican were convicted after a trial in Tennessee, engaged in a romance fraud, uh, and again we've talked about romance scams, and uh, it's a um, it's very prevalent, and we need to be uh, 
uh, be very very conscious of when our our loved ones, our friends, our neighbors, or you hear about people who who have this ongoing relationship with somebody they've never met, they don't know, and are sending money to somebody they don't know, and and that should be a red flag. And and I think as as your friendship, as your duty, you should you know just try to talk to the people and say it's like too good to be true that this person all of a sudden knows everything uh, I mean everything he or she likes it uh, uh, you like and it just gets to be too it, it it's just too good to be true I, I guess I can say that and I've heard stories and stories about this and 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 the people on the professional side that do this who who do these scams they're very good and they're usually very well educated, and they know how to manipulate you. And again, on a romance scam, it's over a period of time. It's not like in the grandparent scam, your your grandson or granddaughter's in jail. Here, they'll work it because they feel they can just milk you out of out of money and funds. And um, uh, as as I said, that the horror stories of people actually believing they're going to meet somebody after sending money for an airfare. And they go, and they're sitting at the airport, and they never come through. And then there's a plausible reason that they give that I didn't get a chance to see you because my plane got diverted or something. So then you try it again, but they need another airline ticket. Well, each ticket, if you're coming in from overseas, is four and five thousand dollars, and they'll send you a receipt, which is a phony receipt which they manufacture. But I think that I I, I think you know when we hear convictions. I think that's that's really good. This was, uh, uh, as I said, in this case, this was in. Um, I'm trying to, in. Um, as I said, Tennessee, and I think out in the Memphis area. Uh, that uh, uh, the the in. It just says here they met somebody on on a dating site, engaged in a three three year romantic relationship with uh, um, with with the the victim, who claimed to be I mean the perpetrator claimed to be an Australian American living in Africa, despite never meeting or speaking with the person money was exchanged, uh, began sending money shortly after their meeting on the on the internet. Um, through an intricate network of strangers based in Africa and the United States and continue to do despite receiving multiple warnings from business and individuals that that they were continuing this criminal conduct. So be aware and uh, and um, uh, please try to help help people that uh, that that you know or you hear about are caught up in this. Um, Uh, another scam that was going on we don't talk much about, but it just says after extradition from Canada, three men from Montreal were sentenced to prison in the Southern District of Illinois. That means, you know, uh, down towards St. Louis uh, for telemarketing fraud that sold bogus medical discount cards to seniors and took in over $1.9 million. I mean, these are professionals. These are their businesses. Um, let me see here. The other one we want to touch on, um, 
the um, which is this is very very good um, uh, in Nigeria they sentenced three men in jail for the romance scams which now we're getting prosecutions in Nigeria um, uh, here's a sad case very sad and this is what happens when you're dealing with seniors who are who who are affected and emotional a woman in British Columbia loses I'm just reading the headlines loses one million to a romance fraud and then commits suicide oh, dear. I mean this shows you how 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 much this affects people emotionally um, and then uh, on the romance scams Thailand remember we talk about this being international it's not just in your neighborhood they're not just playing on you because they picked you out you're one of many many people all over the world um, they arrested seven for romance fraud in Thailand and um, on our lottery fraud that we talk about that comes out of Jamaica, they just announced a Jamaica man pleads guilty to lottery f- fraud uh, in a Jamaica court. Um, so things are happening. Uh, um, <laughs> the another uh, the, headline, the, uh, the National Police in Nigeria raid a hangout of, 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 of a group of people who are perpetrating these frauds um, uh, and they arrested five and seized five exotic cars and laptops. That's, that's where money goes. It's not like they're saving the money. I had a, I had a, 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 a victim say, well, can I get any of my money back? And I, and I said, you know, but the reality is that uh, these people are consumers. They're not savers. Uh, With that, uh, we're going to take our first break, and we'll be back with uh, Mark Miller for our next segment. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is Around Town Movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not so fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around Town Movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, Around Town Movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's Around Town Movers. Call them. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. 
From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Uh, welcome back to segment two of the Safe Senior uh, Hour. Um, we're honored today to have two guests, one in the in the studio, uh, Melanie McNeil, the Georgia uh, State Long-Term Care Ombudsman, and our guest on, on the line is Mark Miller, who is the uh, District of Columbia's uh, Long-Term Care Ombudsman. Mark, welcome. Um, I guess we're having a little technical difficulty here, um, but we'll work on that. And we, while we go, we were talking a little bit about the the victim in the previous segment who uh, unfortunately um, was caught up in a romance scam. And um, we're just I was just reading some more about this that every uh, penny was gone. Nothing was left over from her. This is a woman who lost a million dollars in British Columbia. And unfortunately, took her life. And uh, but there were two signs um, that I thought was interesting. They had a 22-month relationship. The couple never met in person, nor did they correspond by video. All warning signs of a romance scam. Sad, isn't it? Well, it's so sad. And also, just to think, that, I mean, as your listeners are listening to or thinking about someone that they know that might be affected. That poor woman lost all of her money, but also lost what she thought was her future. It's a relationship with someone who she thought loved her and was looking forward to traveling the world and having this wonderful relationship. And so, you know, that abuse takes its toll in a lot of ways, not just the financial, but also, as you were mentioning, Joe, emotionally, how devastating that is for people who get scammed. It, it, it is amazing. The, uh, the, the article says the Better Business Bureau reports that romance scam victims in Canada and the U.S. have lost nearly a billion over the last three years. Wow. It, so there are more people out there trying to, again, we can't say if you see something, say something, that adage. But remember, abuse doesn't report itself. And, uh, um, and, be cautious and have a skeptic mind and ask questions. Um, and look for those red flags that you mentioned. Right, right. Um, you know, it, it, you have a feeling, and I, and I go, you know, we used to teach us people have uh, intuitions, and we always taught us in the government, females have better intuitions than males. I don't know if that's true. But, but you do. You know what's right. But you, you're so, especially if you're lonely or you want to get in a relationship, you want to believe. And that's what the professionals play on. You know, it's just just amazing here. Um, Mark, let's try it again, okay? Let me see. We're trying to... Um, we're, we're trying to get our, our technical dif- difficulty settled. Okay, he should be on. Mark? I don't... <laughs> Mark, are you on? No, we're still doing well. While well, we still try to work this out, the um, um, he, he um, no idea. 
he advised uh, on this um, on this scam that um, allegedly he was working in an oil rig in Kuwait, and all of a sudden he was the love of her life. Reports her relative. Within days and weeks, they were going to get married. They were going to travel the world, just as just exactly as Melanie said, and it was going to look after her. She just fell for it. The um, um, and he was working. He was on the oil rig out in the ocean somewhere, and he was expecting payment for jobs he had not he had not done in Kuwait, uh, and never got the money. So. Uh, um, Okay, so I think that 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 that's a that's kind of a a, a, hor- a horrible situation. Um, the uh, okay, Mark, can you hear us? Hey, Mark, uh, Joe Gavallis here, and Melanie here. I hope I hope you can hear us. Hey, Mark, thank you for joining the show today. Well, you can. Uh, there we go. Is that any better? Yeah, that's a little better. Okay. Great. You can hear me, okay? Yes, yes, yes. We can hear. Okay, go. The uh, so we uh, we appreciate you uh, calling and calling in, and sorry for the technical difficulties. But um, as again we said, you are the uh, uh, long-term uh, care ombudsman for the District of Columbia. And uh, and then your background, I think what Melanie said was... Sure, sure. So, uh, Mark, if you want to just share with folks, I know you've been involved with the Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program for quite some time. So if you wouldn't mind, just let the listeners know what your experience has been. Sure. I started actually as a long-term care ombudsman, a local ombudsman, hmm. in uh, the Charlottesville, Virginia area back in 1984. So I probably hmm. just told a few people how old I am. But, uh, <laughs> I started as a local ombudsman, really enjoyed working with the program. I actually uh, kind of initiated that local program with a very small grant, enjoyed it, had an opportunity to work uh, at the state level uh, as an assistant state ombudsman, and then served as the state ombudsman in Virginia for about eight years, and then also as the state ombudsman in New York for about eight and a half years. So. Uh, traveled around a little bit, and now uh, have found my way back to uh, uh, back to the Mid Atlantic here in DC. Right. And uh, Mark, how long have you been the long-term care ombudsman in the district? Uh, almost three years. So your background is 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 very broad-based, and I think we have a, since we have listeners all over the the, the United States and and obviously the world, but. Um, do you see, and, and Melanie, chime in, <clears throat> the difference between your or, or the amount of work or your responsibilities in a metropolitan area versus in the rural area? I mean, we have a lot of rural places in Georgia, but right. so did Virginia, and people who don't know when they look at New York, New York uh, it's got a lot of rural places, too. So It, it does. People generally think of New York City, but there's, right. there's, a, there's a whole other state connected to it. So, um, I, you know, to answer your question, I think the certainly the mission and the charge of the program uh, to be an advocate for persons receiving long-term care services in in facilities is is the same no matter no matter where you go uh, what 
what's different is kind of the, sometimes the, the structure and the scope of the program, uh, how they operationalize it. So certainly in a kind of a city, uh, it's, it's a little easier to cover in some ways, uh, just geographically, uh, much different than Georgia or even New York where you have very dense, uh, you know, pockets of very dense population and then, of course, huge, huge areas of uh, rural area where there are also facilities and you still need to provide services and cover cover those areas, which makes it a little bit more of a challenge in, in larger in larger states. Mark, this is Melanie. Um, can you talk a little bit about whether your ombudsman representatives are employed directly by your program or in New York and in Virginia if they were employees of your program or if you had contracts and, uh, you know, how you provided coverage? Right. So it, it, it varies. Uh, here in the district, um, we're just a single centralized office. Um, uh, we're housed at Legal Counsel for the Elderly, which um, is a non-profit affiliate of uh, AARP. And uh, they just for, for background purposes, Legal Counsel for the Elderly provides uh, legal services to low-income district residents 60 and, 60 and older. That, that's totally free. Um, so at any rate, we, it, it's, um, so we're, we're centralized. We have a staff of about 10 paid individuals and then 25 volunteers. Wow. In, in New York and in others, you know, as I mentioned, Depending on the state, they have different structures and, and, and they operate the program a little differently. In New York, we had contracts with 15 regional uh, nonprofits that then provided services. So the employees were employees of those nonprofits, uh, and then they in turn also recruited and trained uh, volunteers, uh, which critical. Uh, critical asset to to this particular you know to this program. So, and if you know if I could talk a little bit about that, if you're sure, interested in sure, volunteer piece of it, sure. So if you uh, volunteers really in many states become the lifeblood of the program because the jurisdiction that most ombudsmen cover is so huge. So for instance, in in New York, there are roughly 170 thousand residents of long-term care facilities spread out amongst about 1,600 uh, nursing homes and assisted living uh, homes and some smaller adult, what they call adult care facilities. But So that's a lot of potential clients. And so you're very dependent upon recruiting a good core of volunteers that uh, in all states are, are trained to then go out and not only serve as eyes and ears uh, for the program to establish a relationship with residents so they know who to go to when there is an issue or a problem or a concern. Uh, but those individuals, uh, for the most part, are trained to then also intervene and try to do uh, complaint resolution activities and are, are, very, are very successful. Uh, but because of this, just the the overwhelming size in, in many states of the clients you're trying to serve, the population you're trying to serve, you really need volunteers because there's not enough resources to put paid staff in every in every facility. Um, and, and that's true here in the district. We have uh, 
18 nursing homes, 12 assisted living facilities, and then about 100 very small group homes that are serving four to six individuals. And so trying to provide a regular presence would not be possible with with just paid staff. Uh, so we, uh, uh, like many states, are just dependent on, on having a good, consistent core of volunteers that can regularly visit uh, residents establish that relationship so they know who they can call um, and and trust with with a question or concern. So it's uh, yeah. it's it impacts, and I, I I think I can't stress enough volunteers where there is a volunteer that's there on a regular basis that yeah. impacts I think the quality of care that that facility offers because they know there's that additional oversight. They know that there's someone coming in visiting residents and. And is there to, to you know to provide assistance when necessary? Yeah, Mark, we want to hear more about that, but we're going to have to uh, take our break from our sure. second segment, and we'll be back in in about uh, a minute and a half for segment three, when we'll continue the conversation with uh, Mark Miller, uh, District Columbia Long Term uh, Care Ombudsman, and Melanie McNeil from Georgia. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not. You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Happy Oregon homeownership is the result of a good working relationship between the home buyer and their realtor. Make buying your Oregon home a fun and rewarding experience. Get our free guide to happy Oregon homeownership. Act now. Limited availability. Free at realoregonhomes.com. That's realoregonhomes.com. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is Joe Gavellis, your host of the uh, Safe Senior Hour. And for this third segment, uh, we're uh, fortunate enough to have uh, Melanie McNeil, the uh, Georgia State Long-Term Care Ombudsman, and Mark Miller, the uh, uh, District of Columbia Long-Term Care Ombudsman. And we're talking about... Uh, what their uh, organization um, does and and how they do it in dealing in uh, uh, institutional type situations. Um, 
just before we go on go any further, I just want to remind everybody, as you know, that, that we use that that uh, mantra that it said through through all uh, people fighting elder abuse is abuse doesn't report itself, and this is a good uh, a good source of, of of trusted confidential conversations you can have to report anything that that looks potential or bothers you the wrong way concerning abuse. So. Um, Keep that in mind. With that, I'm just going to go to Melanie. Could you just, um, I, uh, Mark talked about, I think, in what, New York, it was 1,600 facilities or something, and I think you had 18 or something like that in D.C. What do we have in Georgia here? So in Georgia, we have 371 nursing homes and about 2,000 personal care homes, what are sometimes described as board and care homes, and assisted living communities. It's about 80,000 residents. So for your listeners across the country, if you're in Rhode Island, you probably have smaller numbers of facilities. If you're in Texas or you're in California, you're going to have lots. One thing I'd like to follow up on what Mark was describing is I think every state ombudsman would encourage people to volunteer. Because in most states, the facilities are spread out. Our paid staff aren't able to get there as frequently as volunteers. Some volunteers feel a real mission to go once a week or, or you know, frequently anyway, visit a facility that's near to them. Maybe they have friends or, or other reasons that they want to volunteer in that facility. And they do get some training. We train our volunteers in every state. They're trained to what to look for. What we mentioned earlier on is our program is independent of the facilities, and the complaints are confidential. So if you have a complaint, you can share it with the ombudsman. We will go and visit with the resident. We are directed by what the resident tells us, whether they're willing for us to take action or not. We do often remind facilities that, the staff in the in the facilities are mandated reporters, so that if they see something, just like you said, elder abuse doesn't report itself, and but facility staff have a mandate that they must report, and so that's helpful information, I think, for your well, listeners to know. Well, that's great. Thank you, Melanie, and and Melanie and Mark. Could you give me some ideas, Mark? We'll start with you. The what kind of people are you looking for to volunteer? I mean, do you accept all volunteers, or basically you're looking for for uh, people that that have specific talents, I guess is a better way to say. Um, you know, that's a great question, Joe. We certainly would take anybody 21 and over that has as an interest. Uh, we provide the training, so hmm. we tell folks you don't need any prior experience. What we find, however, is that many of our volunteers that are interested, um, it's by word of mouth. They've talked to another volunteer that is maybe done this for a number of years and is, as Melanie said, very committed uh, to, you know, to serving people in their own community or neighborhood where these facilities may be located. Uh, But again, we we provide the training, so that's not necessary. One of the things we do, however, ask is for a commitment. Volunteers, it's very important that that they're there on a regular basis. And as Melanie mentioned, some of them may be there once a week, maybe once every other week, but to have a stable presence and someone that residents get to know uh, and, and trust and that the facilities get to know as well uh, so that they, when they do identify issues or concerns, they can more easily address them with, with someone they already have a relationship with. So uh, we do ask for a commitment in the D.C. program. 
that anyone volunteering would commit to at least a year. Uh, the other thing that's important to note is we put folks through uh, a background check, uh, which I think is, is very important because you're dealing with, with individuals that are vulnerable uh, and that are, that are uh, obviously trusting you with certain information and, and uh, uh, that they might not share with other folks. So uh, those, are, those are a couple of things that we certainly, we certainly look for. And I, I will say in the district and in other states I've been in, you have folks that have you know, served, they, they served maybe a year or two, and other folks uh, that have volunteered with the program for you know, 10 or 15 years. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, just to, to follow up on that, we do background checks here. I would imagine that every state has a requirement for a background check for the reasons that Mark mentioned, because the residents are, are vulnerable in a lot of ways. We also ask for a conflict of interest. So if a volunteer has a family member who's an employee of a facility, they couldn't visit at that, um, right. at that, at that place. So we do look for conflicts of interest. One of the other things I think that's really important with volunteers, and so your listeners maybe, maybe this is another way to encourage them, is volunteers bring the community to the facility. When you think about it, a lot of facilities, especially in the more rural areas, may not have a lot of visitors from outside. So people feel really isolated from what used to be their community, but, you know, they can't get out and to see their friends or do other things. And so in a way, our volunteers are bringing the community back to them. So it's a really, really important volunteer opportunity for any of your listeners who might be thinking, I've got a little bit of extra time. I'd like to make that commitment. Well, it's certainly beneficial. And, and again, everybody's goal, whether it's law enforcement, regulatory, is, is and, and it should be for citizens, is not to have anybody go through any abuse. And I know that's a pie-in-the-sky thought, but it, it is really significant. I want to just change change the direction here and hear from you, Mark, and then Melanie, on what do you see the trends of complaints that, you, that you're, you're, you're receiving that you're your volunteers or your staff people are getting back to you. What's going on uh, uh, out in, in these assistant living areas? And uh, some kind of guidelines for people to uh, to know what to look for, to tell, to, to give you the call. Right. So, that was a lot, but... <laughs> yeah, but, no, no, that's, that, that's great. And I think over the years, because I've, you know, I've done this for, for a while, right. I think the, the nature of the issues that, that we encounter or that are brought to our attention are much more complex than they used to be. And I think it's because we've done such a great job with helping people stay in their own home and in the community that by the time they're really in need of a uh, assisted living or a nursing home, they're much more debilitated and, and much more vulnerable. Certainly a high percentage of folks with, with dementia uh, and cognitive impairments, which you know, just by definition, puts them at a, you know, makes them a little more more vulnerable. But what I've seen is an increase in the number of discharge and eviction uh, issues that mm. that come to us, where the facility is attempting to, um, you know, discharge a resident, maybe because of payment issues, maybe because of behavioral issues, and they they feel they just can't, um, you know, provide services to the resident or whatever. Uh, those have increased, I think, across the country. When you look at our, our numbers nationally, I believe that's the most frequent type of issue that ombudsmen currently deal with. 
uh, it used to be, you know, the simple issues of cold coffee and, uh, you know, waiting a long time for someone to respond to a call late, which is, which is still a serious and significant issue. But I, I think there's been a tr- more of a trend toward uh, problems with discharge and eviction. I think medication issues have become a larger issue. Um, and by that, I mean people that uh, aren't getting their medication when they're supposed to or on a timely basis uh, or at all. Um, those sorts of things, much more complex, much more serious sort of issues uh, that that are coming that are coming to us. How does that sound, Melanie? You see the same thing in Georgia. We do. Transfer and discharge has been our number one complaint for as long as I've been the state long-term care ombudsman. I did want to mention a couple of more recent things, and Mark, maybe you can chime in on this too. Social media is now an issue. We're seeing more of that as staff members use their phones for taking videos and sharing them inappropriately. Even family members who might have an agenda who who are taking videos and then putting them out there without resident permission. And it's it's an it's a new area for all of us. When you think so, here I'm showing my age. Twenty years ago, I would never have taken out my flip phone and tried to take a video because we didn't do that. Right. But these days, you know, there's there's a lot of that, and so trying to help residents, their family members, facilities understand about that that that's a, a sort of an up and coming issue. That I don't think we have all the answers. How about you, Mark? Do you have? Yeah, I, I think the other thing I would add to that is when you, when we look at um, the issues that come to us, Joe, you know, you can kind of generally categorize them in resident care, resident rights, quality of life sort of uh, sort of issues. What I've noticed, no matter where I've where I've been and where I've served as an advocate, sixty percent, maybe more, of all the complaints we receive have some connection to staffing. Um, and, and we continue to see that even in the district. And, it, and by that I mean inadequate numbers of staff, particularly when you're dealing with a, a, a significantly, I think, a, a larger percentage of your residents now that do have dementia that need a lot more assistance yeah, and, and direction. So lack of staff, lack of appropriate training, as Melanie mentioned, that, that should be kind of a no-brainer that you just don't do those sorts of things. Um, lack of supervision of staff. Uh, and then there's that sort of uh, subcategory of staff themselves that are that are stressed because fewer staff puts more stress. I have more people to take care of. Uh, we recently had a facility we were in where one uh, certified nursing aide was responsible for 25 uh, individuals, individual residents on a wing, and many of those people had. Uh, some impairment where they needed assistance with everything from bathing to dressing to toileting. <clears throat> One person can't do that. Uh, and, and so that obviously leads to a, a lot of problems. But, but again, I think the point when you go in, you would ask Joe, well, what, what should people ask for? <clears throat> if I'm a family member and, I'm, and I have the, the, the time and luxury for, for looking, you certainly want a place that you're close enough to that you can visit regularly because people will get better care the more more uh, visitors and, and, uh, that they have. I would ask about the staffing. What's what's their staffing ratio? I would ask about uh, activities. I would ask about transportation to and from uh, doctor's appointments and those those sorts of things. Uh, 
Mark, we're going to have support. to excuse me. We're going to have to break for the for this segment, but we'll come back and continue that that discussion because it's very important what you we are going through. This is what people are need to hear, and we can't thank both you and Melanie for that. So with that, we'll take our other other break and go from there. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And uh, welcome back to our last segment of the uh, Safe Senior Hour, and again, our guests are uh, Melanie McNeil, who is the Georgia Long-Term Care Ombudsman, and uh, Mark Miller, uh, the Long-Term Care Ombudsman from District Columbia. And we're having a very, uh, very good, inf- informal, informative uh, in- uh, discussion concerning what things to look for when you're dealing with your loved ones uh, of when you go to put them in some kind of an assistant living and Again, I just want to say I know, um, especially for uh, for myself, and I think everybody else. I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not. We're not giving out legal advice here. But if you have any questions, contact your own attorney or contact legal aid. Um, but we're just giving you advice and uh, of uh, uh, from experience what to do here. And so. Um, uh, with that, we'll go, uh, uh, Mark. I didn't mean to to, uh, to cut you short uh, before you were talking about um, a uh, selection, how you select the locations. So if you could continue, that'd be great, great information. Oh, sure, thanks. I, I I think the other thing I would that I think is exceptionally important, and probably the most important point, is to make sure that the the resident, to the extent that they can, understands what's happening because generally you're talking about a transition from home and community into a facility sometimes that's just for short term with with you know the ultimate goal of returning and so if that's what the resident really wants then you need to you know the the family needs to work with the facility to focus on that on that goal so that uh discharge planning appropriate discharge uh planning is done 
from the day you move in. So what is it that we need to do for the resident to perhaps restore their ability to return home safely uh, within home services? One of the, uh, I guess, benefits uh, of the D.C. Ombudsman Program is we have an expanded scope um, of jurisdiction, and there's about 12 states that have similar uh, responsibilities where we respond to complaints uh, from people in the community that are receiving uh, home health care services uh, in in their home. And so it, it the benefit to that for us is we can kind of follow people from the facility back into the community to make sure that they're getting the services they need to to safely remain remain there. Um, but I, I again, the, the point of all of that is you really need to be in tune with what the resident, what he or she wants. Uh, and oftentimes this is a tough transition. Uh, for people to make, and uh, to the extent that they can, that they want to, and can safely return home, that that should be that should be the goal. And so, when you look at a facility, when you're <clears throat> when you're choosing a facility, you need to make sure that that particular facility is going to meet their individual needs, so that they can actually successfully do that. Uh, and and these are great suggestions, and I, and I think it's wonderful. I think the people. Uh, our listeners would, would would love to know what is the scope of people calling you in terms of of complaints or of information. Is it just? I mean, obviously, it could be the patient, but it could be who 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 who, who all makes the complaints here. Um, well, in in the district, and I don't think it's too much different. I mean, Melanie can certainly talk about Georgia, but. Uh, oftentimes, for us, it's the resident uh, mm -hmm. and the family. Those the, uh, those are the two single, uh, you know, largest populations that contact us for for help. Normally, residents are telling us when we're in the facility, and someone's just sitting and talking with them about their care. Uh, other than that, it's families that are calling us that have gone to visit and are concerned uh, with with what they've with what they've seen. We do get a uh, a percentage of Staff that actually call us uh, that are that are concerned. So we'll take calls from anyone. Uh, as Melanie mentioned earlier in the program, our procedure though is to then go and speak with the resident to see if they want our help and if so, how. Uh, because they they're the driver in all of this. We're we're an advocate for them uh, at first, not necessarily the family or facility or you know the neighbor. Uh, we're going to take our direction from from the resident to the extent that that's possible. Melanie? Sure, just to follow up, Mark was talking about the scope of what we do. Sometimes we get complaints from family, but it's a family issue. It doesn't really impact the resident at all. And so in those instances, we try to explain to the family, you know, you have a family dynamic situation, but that's not what we cover. Sometimes we'll get complaints that are really regulatory so uh, from staff sometimes who will say, uh, you know, things aren't sanitary or, you know, that's a regulatory issue. Now, we can talk with a facility about a complaint like that. If a resident says, you know, my laundry isn't clean, we can talk to them about that. But some of the things that are more specific is the water temperature too hot, is the food not, is the food spoiled, those kinds of things would really be regulatory. But we would, whoever complains, we would explain to them, 
that's a complaint you should make to the regulators versus uh, that's something that we can assist uh, assist you to resolve. In Georgia, we do not go into the community. We do not serve residents who are receiving long-term care services. As Mark mentioned, some states do that. I think more of the states, more than half of the states don't do that. So in your state, for your listeners, they might want to check with the ombudsman. Again, they can probably find them on the web and then check to see whether th- those ombudsman representatives also serve folks in the community. Right. I, I know um, here in, in Georgia and Tennessee, I'm aware of situations that, uh, as we're talking about social media, where uh, there's been abuse that I know law enforcement's got involved in, and that is the the videoing of, of, of residents and uh, especially people with dementia or or severe handicaps. Um, so there was a bill here in our legislature in Georgia. Didn't go anywhere, but they wanted to set up cameras in nursing homes uh, or uh, assisted living facilities. Um, just love to get your ideas on that because I know I, I, without going in, I'm not trying to say what's legal or not in Georgia. It's a one party consent state. Some part some states are two party consent. I don't know what the what the what the law, and I'm not the lawyer on it. But some some families have taken it on their own to set up recording devices, and those where it's allowed have been used to prosecute staff that have been uh, abusive to uh, to the to the resident here. I just want to get some of your ideas on that, and if you've seen this is a problem. So I'll take this question first, Mark, if you don't mind, and then I'll let you respond. In Georgia, the bill that was introduced tried to take into consideration uh, permission from the other, like a roommate, for example. You know, it's complicated. I I can't say for all states, but I imagine most states have some facilities that have shared rooms, and when it's a shared room, then there's always that complication of the privacy of the roommate. And then who turns the, who, who has authority to turn the camera off? Who has authority to turn it on? How do you store whatever uh, right. video you might have? Lots of issues. It's a very complicated issue. But I, I think people who want to do that, part of what they're trying to capture is if there is a lack of staff. So is their loved one not getting the services that they want and need? And so there's there's that part of it. I think uh, it's just uh, it's a complicated issue, and so it'll take a lot of uh, well, negotiation. I, I, I think uh, before, Mark, I hear your comments. On the cases that happened here is that the families just got frustrated. Now, whether they... I'm pretty sure on one of them they never went to the ombudsman because the question was asked but because they felt frustrated. There was nobody to go. The facility wouldn't listen to them. So, you know, we'll go take it in our own hands. And that's why we want to get the message out before this gets to this extent to get it certainly to your in your hands and and go from there because it is the confidentiality of the resident. But if they allow you to go to Right, regulators or law enforcement, you you are okay to do that. Is that correct? Absolutely. If we have permission from the resident, we have authority to talk to whomever, whether it's law enforcement or regulatory mm-hmm. or the facility directly. As long as we have resident permission, we can report and, and take action. And so, uh, Mark, have you encountered this issue of cameras in facilities? Um, 
just to yeah to add to what you've said, Melanie, I, and and the district um, is a is a one party uh, notice state, but we haven't had this come up quite as often. I know when I was in New York, the um, if there was any sense that there was criminal activity in terms of like I don't know drug diversion or sexual activity, um, imp- yeah, imp- any, right. like potential sexual assault, that sort of thing, with someone who was not competent. Uh, the attorney general's office would often get a, um, uh, I guess, an order uh, to put a camera in. Mm-hmm. But you know, here in the district, I, you know, to follow up on what you said, we're we're really trying to work with families and, and facilities as close as we can, so that if there's a problem, they don't get so frustrated that they feel the need to, you know, install some sort of a, a hidden camera device or something. Uh, interestingly, in the district right now, we are working with a couple of facilities that are wanting to install additional cameras, uh, not in resident rooms, but in common areas, which you would, on the surface, say, well, that's a great thing for security and monitoring staff and and all that, but it it can kind of cut both ways. We've had some residents concerned with their their privacy while they're in in certain common areas, like the dining rooms and and, uh, uh, resident council meeting spaces and and things like that, so... um, Cameras, as Melanie mentioned, is a is a very complex issue, kind of almost a case by case, and it and it and it depends on what it is you're trying to trying to achieve. Um, so it's it's uh, well as complex a, as they say in the law enforcement world. Cameras will help convict somebody, but to be effective, you don't announce they're there, um, and so it's not really a deterrent. So I. I, I I think it's a hard case. It's 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 a hard issue, and I don't envy you all. And I don't know whether, which will lead us into it to our our final point. Whether you're you're, I believe you have some national group. Somebody, have you all trying to address some of these issues? I know you have a national organization. Right, we, right, we do. Somebody so, want to address that, please? Sure. So the national um, national state long term care ombudsman program association. Uh, didn't say that right, but NASOP. Is a association of all of the state long-term care ombudsmen, District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and Guam, and we do we do uh, work together to identify issues and best practices. Right, and Mark, I think you you you've been a party of that too. So uh, yes. I think it's great. I, I just want to uh, summarize. We I just got the sign that we're going to have to. Uh, End this segment, but I want to thank you, Mark, for uh, for attending, and you, uh, Melanie, and uh, hopefully we can get you all back and go in a little more details. But again, thank you all for participating today on the Safe Senior Hour. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.